This morning we come to the sixth chapter of Ephesians for the last time. It's a sad day for me. I hate finishing a book. But today we're finishing the study of this marvelous book. This is the 60th message in the book of Ephesians. So let's reflect on Paul's circumstances as he writes this letter. He's in prison in Rome. He's chained to a guard. He's getting up in years. His health is probably not that great. And from the book of the Philippians, written during that same imprisonment, we learn that fellow Christians in Rome were attacking Paul. So we can understand that Paul sends out an appeal for prayer for his own needs. But he doesn't. As we talked last week, his prayer was for boldness. Not about any of his needs, not about getting out of jail, just help me to open my mouth and proclaim the gospel. Now think about this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is asking for boldness. When Paul was in Greece, the people called him Mercury. Look at Acts 14, 11-12. It says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and come down to us. They're thinking Paul is a god. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now Hermes, or Mercury, was the god of oratory. The god of eloquence. So they're saying, wow, this guy, he's a god. He is so eloquent. He is so powerful. This is the same Apostle Paul that Peter wrote and said, Paul writes things hard to be understood. And here's this man on his knees before God asking for boldness. It's really remarkable. And I mean, if Paul was praying for boldness, where should we be in this issue? You know? I mean, I don't know how you get more bold than Paul was. But that was his request. Now, as we saw last time, his only request was that he would be bold in proclaiming the Gospel. When it comes to saying farewell, Paul's focus, his concern is on the Christians that they not be worried about him. He knew that they were concerned about his imprisonment. And he writes in Ephesians 3.13, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are for your glory. So he's worried that they're worried about him. So he sent Tychicus to tell them about his situation and literally to comfort their hearts. Caring godly relationships among believers are at the very heart of the purpose of the church. And here Paul is caring for these people so much because he's worried that they're worried about him. It seems that his biggest concern was their concern for him because he's in prison. So twice in chapter 6, 21 and 22, Paul repeats that Tychicus will let the Ephesians know how he is doing. Of course, sending Tychicus meant that Paul would be deprived of this dear brother's presence. His words about Tychicus show us how much he appreciated this dear man of God. Both the words about Tychicus and Paul's benediction show us that he is a very caring man. I mean, he is in prison. His biggest concern is them being concerned for him. I mean, it's like, it's almost foreign for us, I think. I think it's obvious that the spirit of our generation is the spirit of independence. This is especially true here in America. You know, our founding document, the Declaration of Independence. And in that document, we declared our independence from the tyranny that our founding fathers felt was imposed upon them by England. And that document reflected a spirit of independence that was paid for by the blood of our forefathers who fought a war of independence. Our independence is a prized possession in this country, and I think it should be. It's being taken away. But the problem comes when we misapply that spirit of independence to the church. See, independence can be good in certain circumstances, but it can also create problems in others. And one such circumstance is in the church. While the spirit of our generation is independence, the nature of the church is interdependence. The church, you see, is a community. 
It's a community of the King. And the church universal always finds expression in the church local, which is a body of believers called out of the world into a spiritual fellowship based on the life of Yeshua within. It's not one person. It's not some special leader or even a group of leaders. It's every believer called to be a part of the local church. As such, it must work through an interdependence of all its members if it's going to work successfully. Independence will tend to erode the fellowship. Learning to depend upon one another, however, will cause the fellowship to grow, both in quality and quantity, I think. The bottom line, people, is that we need each other. I need what you have in Christ. You need what I have in Christ. We need each other. And community is the key. And Yahweh designed the church to bring together people of different backgrounds, cultures, races, situation in life so we could learn to live together with one another. And sometimes that's difficult. But that's the whole purpose. If it wasn't difficult, we wouldn't need to love one another. And as we live together, I think Yahweh breaks down the walls that divide us. In the church, He deals with our selfishness. In the church, He deals with our pride. In the church, He deals with all of the issues of isolation that keep us apart. That keep us from living as people created in His image for whom Christ died. And as Paul closes this letter to the Ephesians, he reveals that interdependence that he is not working alone. He had help. There were many helpers who worked with Paul without whom Paul's ministry could not have been nearly as effective as it was. You know, we think of Paul and we forget about these all these other people that were connected to him that made things happen. Paul knew that. He knew he was dependent on these people and he acknowledged that by including them. You know, as he closes his letters, he always thanks the people that are with him and the people that were helping him and the people that were supporting him. In Ephesians 6.21 he says, but that you also may know about my circumstances. See, he wants them to understand what's going on with him. How I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. Paul's words here are almost exactly identical with Colossians 4, 7, and 8. Notice that he says that you also may know. Now, there's a lot of arguments about what also means. I mean, commentaries, you go on and on and on, you know. I think basically here he's just saying, I sent this letter to the other recipients also. Colossians got, you know, the letter also, and I want you to know also. They know I want you to know. Paul wanted them to know how he was doing. He wanted them to know about his circumstances. So he's sending Tychicus who's going to fill him in on what's going on with him. As I said, he was concerned about them. Now, people, you're in jail and you're chained to somebody and how much concern do you have for somebody else? And especially, I'm really concerned about them because they're concerned about me and I don't want them to have to be concerned. I think if I was in jail, my concern would not be your concern for me. <laughs> I think if I was in jail, my concern would be my concern for me. And my prayer request would be, get me out of here. But this is not Paul. The name Tychicus appears five times in the New Testament. And unlike other names that reoccur, I think all five of these are dealing with the same individual mentioned in this passage. He's one of those really no-name servants of God in the New Testament who made a big impact for the cause of Christ. Tychicus traveled widely with Paul, along with some other men. He accompanied Paul on part of his third missionary journey, according to Acts 20, verse 4. He was one of the men who helped take the collection to Jerusalem. Tychicus willingly traveled with Paul to Jerusalem, and that shows the servant's heart. You know, it's not like today. They didn't get in a plane, you know, and fly over there. It was not an easy journey. Travel in the ancient world was difficult, and it was dangerous. The trip to Jerusalem would have been very difficult and would have taken Tychicus away from his family, his friends, his church for a long time. Along the way, Paul was repeatedly warned you know, what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. And although Tychicus certainly was present and heard those warnings, it doesn't seem to affect him. He just kept on traveling with Paul. He also went to the trouble of going to Rome to be with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment. Now Paul is sending him back to Asia with the letters of 
the Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. Assuming as we did in the very first study that the book of Ephesians was uh, a circular letter. It was meant for many churches in Asia. It wasn't just specifically for that one church in Ephesus. That So Tychicus is basically the postman. He's taking this letter to all these different churches. He's distributing it to all of them. Now, the trip from Rome to Ephesus and Colossae was difficult. Tychicus would have had gone across most Italy by foot, and then he had to go across the Adriatic Sea there. After traveling Greece on foot, he would sail across the Aegean Sea to the coast of Asia Minor. Now, once he reached Ephesus, he still faced a journey of about 100 miles to get to Colossae. Then he was entrusted with delivering the Word of God. Once again, it indicates Paul had a real trust in this man. I mean, he writes these letters and he is carrying the Word of God. Tychicus also escorted the runaway slave Onesimus, who had become a Christian, back to his owner Philemon. And I think Tychicus was most likely responsible to intervene before Philemon so that he would welcome back Onesimus as a brother rather than punish him as the law dictated. Later, Paul sent either Tychicus or Artemis to relieve Titus on the Isle of Crete, according to Titus 3.2. He says, I'm going to send one of them, so we don't know which one he sent. Tychicus was also with Paul in his second imprisonment, and Paul sent him to Ephesus to free Timothy from Ephesus so Timothy could come and be with Paul before he's executed. So here's a brother who's willing to do whatever needs to be done. You know, yeah, I'll go there, I'll relieve Timothy, he'd come here and be with you before you die. Now, Paul gives us a threefold expression of that admiration he has for this brother. He gives two in our text, and he gives an additional one in Colossians. He says he is the beloved brother. Now, the article the here marks him as well known to them. In other words, he's the Tychicus. You know him. You all know who he is. So they must have been, you know, fairly well known. He was with Paul a lot. He, they had endeared himself to all of them. The word beloved is the Greek word agapetas. It's used 60 times in the New Testament. The first nine times of God to Christ, His beloved Son. It says, Behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Its only other use, other than God for the Son, is for believers. The only other use of beloved. It's a term of affection. It's use of a deep and abiding love. Love for one another. That was a characteristic of the early church. I don't know that we could say that today. But it was a characteristic of them. A Greek writer, Lucian, who lived about A.D. 120 to 200, said this of the early Christians. It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help one another with their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Yeshua, was, has put it into their heads that they are all brethren. I mean, if someone was writing today about the church, that would not be what they say. They would say, boy, this group is messed up. They're fighting about the simplest thing. They're arguing. You know, it's just sad what would be said. But that's an incredible testimony for the church. He says it's incredible to see the fervor with which these people meet each other's needs. Help each other out. I like it. He said this Yeshua put in their heads that they're brothers. In other words, they must have believed them. And they act like, you know, they are. Tychicus was dependable in every way. And that's why Paul calls him a faithful minister. Now the word minister is from the Greek diakonos, which means an attendant, a waiter, at a table or any menial duties. This is where we get our word deacon from. It seems that Tychicus had a greater concern for Paul and the body of Christ than for his own interests, his own needs. Faithful is from the Greek word pistos. It's that quality of being true, trustworthy, reliable in all one's dealings with others. Faithfulness means something like dependability. And we admire faithfulness in all realms of life. The person with this quality keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He keeps his vows. Well, Tychicus was a man who kept his word. He did what he was assigned to do, and he did it with integrity. Paul could trust him with a weighty responsibility for the churches in Crete or in Ephesus and know that he would carry out that responsibility fully. 
You know, in a day it would have been really easy to mishandle the large financial gift that he was taking to Jerusalem. They didn't worry. He could be trusted to deliver safely that gift to Jerusalem. He could be trusted to deliver the letters to Ephesus and Colossae, Philemon. You know, he had no idea that his name was going to end up in Scripture. But we have Tychicus mentioned in our New Testament today because he was a faithful man. And so Paul included him. They wanted the brothers to understand the help he had been. You know, faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit, and it should mark every believer. We should be known as people who are faithful. But it seems all too often that it's lacking among Christians. It means that if you take on a responsibility, a leader or somebody doesn't have to prod you, check on you repeatedly, see if it's done, you do it as under the Lord. Faithfulness is a critical part of caring relationships because it means if you say you'll do something, you do it. Now, you know, today it doesn't seem to be that way. People say they'll do something and you're like, sure hope so. But you should be able to count on somebody. Their word should be their bond. Do you say something? Yes, you know that's going to happen. Faithfulness is a quality of Yahweh. Lamentations 3.22 and 23 says, Yahweh's loving kindness indeed never ceases. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. We appreciate that in God. He is a faithful God. We see this supremely manifested in our Lord Yeshua, who John calls faithful in Revelation 19.11. He says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We are assured that faithful is he who calls you who will also bring it to pass. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 Our God is faithful. And because our God is faithful, His children are also to be faithful. And you know, when Yahweh asks someone to be involved in ministry, which He asks all of us to be involved in, He doesn't require that we be brilliant or clever. We don't even have to be original. He doesn't expect us to be famous or popular. You know that He doesn't even expect... Success from us. What does he expect? Faithfulness. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. In this case, moreover, he says, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. This is pistis, the same word. Faithful. Someone had said that the greatest ability in the world is dependability. That's true. You know, it's nice that you can depend on people that you know they're going to do what they said they would do. The believer is never to be like a chameleon, which changes color with the surroundings. He to be steady and reliable in all circumstances. His friendship and concerns are never to be dictated by what's in it for him or even how much it's going to cost him. Just as our Lord is faithful in all things, even so, He manifests this character in His children when they walk by the Spirit. And Paul could depend on Tychicus. He was a faithful servant. You know, today it costs us relatively little to minister the Gospel faithfully. No one really persecutes us. No one really puts us in jail for preaching the Gospel. No one ostracizes us for our witness for Christ today. Yet I think there's more unfaithfulness in the ministry today than in Paul's day. God is looking for people upon whom He can count to do things. I think it's interesting that the New American Standard Bible translates the same Greek phrase, faithful minister in Ephesians and Faithful servant in Colossians. I mean, why? What is the translator? Why do they take the same exact phrase and translate it two different ways? Well, what's the difference between a minister and a servant? Well, biblically, none. But for a mother talking to her friend, she'd probably rather say, "My son's a minister," than "My son's a servant." <laughs> you know, it's just you know, there's no such thing as a clergy laity distinction in the New Testament. We don't have, you know, clergy up here and ladies under here. You know, and you got in with God and you can talk to God. And we, no, that's ridiculous. That's not in the, that's a Catholic religion. That is not the Bible. 
Every Christian is a minister. Every Christian is a servant of Christ. Some are supported full-time to do that. Others work as Paul did and support themselves. But whether he worked or was supported by the churches, he was faithful. And Tychicus was a faithful servant in the Lord. In Colossians 4.7, he adds, Paul adds that he was a fellow bondservant. This is from the Greek, sundulas, which means a co-slave. This reveals the kinship that Paul sensed with this man as he wrote from his prison cell. Tychicus had entered into his labors as a slave of Christ, sharing in the suffering and the joys of Christian ministry. It'd be incorrect for us to think of Tychicus simply as a bearer of letters or as a reliable informant. He was so much more to Paul. He was a faithful minister. He was a a co-laborer in the gospel ministry with Paul. Now, that's hard for us to think of. I mean, you can think of the Apostle Paul. Man, he's up there on the scale. Well, Tychicus is right there by his side the whole time. And let me say this, and this needs to be said in our day and age. Paul was not a politician. He was a man of God. You understand what I'm saying by that? Okay, he's not lying. He's not exaggerating. He's not embellishing for his own cause. He is describing things as they really were. Alright? He's not, you know, I really need tickets to do this. Let me puff him up so he thinks he's important and maybe he'll carry it out. That's not Paul. Alright? He didn't exaggerate their accomplishments. However, he did give them their due. He accurately estimated their abilities and their qualities. And I think this some thumbnail sketch that we see of Tychicus was accurate. He was not only a brother, he was a beloved brother. He wasn't just a minister, he was a faithful minister. And he wasn't just a servant, he was a fellow servant. If Paul were writing a letter to your church, would he give a similar description of your Christian walk? How would Paul have ministered so effectively without the help of the faithful servants? How would he have done it? I mean, he couldn't have got this letter out. It wouldn't have gone beyond the prison cell if he didn't have someone he could count on to carry it. And and the church today, every bit as much, needs faithful men and women to minister effectively. And let me say, without the faithful men we have here, none of my teaching would go beyond these walls. Probably wouldn't even take place at all. If Berean has a ministry outside of these four walls, it does so because of faithful men like Garrett and Jeff, who broadcast, who do recordings, who you know get in here early and set things up, who stay here late and get things put together. And then you got Jeff taking care of the website and editing audios and stuff, so they can go out to other people. You know, I always laugh when people write me and say, "Thanks so much for the website," and I'm like. I have nothing to do with the website. You know? Why are you thanking me? You know, or thanks so much for those videos. And I always say the same thing. I have nothing to do with it. I don't do it. I'm a one-trick pony. Okay? I can study and I can teach. That's all I do. I can't do much else. You know, and the other things get done because people get them done. And I never went to Garrett and said, hey, Garrett, would you do this? Or Jeff, hey, would you do this? I, you don't have to do that. When people are hunger to minister, they find a spot. Garrett's been with us since he was a year old. When he came in here as a year old, I never thought he'd be running our video, you know, stuff. Uh, I never thought that far ahead, you know, but, but I mean, you know, it was his, it was his burden. Hey, let's broadcast. And I'm like, how do you, I don't know anything about that, you know, and the first Sunday we met here, and the reason we moved to a building was so we could, because the Y wouldn't let us. First Sunday they were here, him and Brian took a computer and turned it backwards and used the camera on the thing. And there was only three people, I think, that even knew we were broadcasting, but they just, because we could do it, you know, they wanted to get it out. And that's how stuff happens. you got to have faithful people who are involved in doing that. You know, and I don't check up on them, because I don't even know what they're doing. I wouldn't know how to check up on it. You know, it just gets done. That's how it's supposed to work. And let me say this. None of this, absolutely none of it, my teaching here, my teaching that goes out, none of it would happen without the faithful men and women who support this ministry financially. You know, you can't do this without money. Because we have to pay rent, they have to pay electric, we have to pay the, you know, all these different bills and they can pay me. None of this could happen without the faithful people who support this. So, this morning I want to say to all you ticket kisses here and there, thank you. 
for being co-laborers with us in the gospel ministry. Because it's because of you that this happens. We have a lot of co-laborers. We have a lot of people who support us financially and help us to get it out. Thank you. It has been said, there's two types of people who walk in the door of the church. One type thinks, here I am, church. Meet my needs. These folks often leave the church disappointed. Because this church just doesn't meet their needs. The other type walks in, looks around and asks, where are the needs I can meet? Those are the Lord's servants. That's what it's about, people. It's not about me, gimme, gimme. It's I'm here to serve. You're here. You come in here to minister to one another. They're there to serve. To serve Christ through ministering to their brothers. I also heard it put another way. There's two types of people in the church. Caterpillars and pillars. Caterpillars crawl in and crawl out. The pillars hold the place up. Here's the question to ask yourself. Alright? If every church member were just like me. I mean, just like you in the sense that they ministered like you, they gave like you, they did what every church member was like you. What kind of church would my church be? Only you can answer that question. But Tychicus wasn't an ordained minister. He wasn't some special guy. He was just a faithful servant who did what needed to be done to minister. I'll stop meddling and go back to teaching. Paul (coughs) says in verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that you may comfort your hearts. To the Colossians he writes, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your heart. Sound familiar? I have sent him to you. The verb pempo here, sent, is an epistolatory aorist. That is, it views the action from the viewpoint of the recipients as they read the letter and should be translated am sending, not sent. If it's translated in the past tense, it might be interpreted that Paul had sent Tychicus before the letter was even written. Again, for some unknown reason, the New American Standard translates the same identical Greek phrase differently. In Ephesians 6.22, Paul says that he's sending Tychicus so that he may comfort your hearts. In Colossians, he says that he may encourage your hearts. Same exact Greek phrase. Parakleo. It means to come alongside to help. Paul knew that the Ephesians were prone to lose heart over his trials. You know, they loved Paul and they were just grieved that he's in prison, he's going through this stuff. So they sent Tychicus, Paul sends Tychicus with this letter for two primary purposes. He wanted to provide more information about himself and his present ministry that he didn't feel led to record in a letter. He also wanted to encourage the Ephesians. The news reported by Tychicus would have comforted their hearts. Paul's re- of Paul's readers, it would have diminished their anxiety. Paul's courageous faith would have been an encouragement to them. He's doing fine. He says that he may comfort your hearts. You know, what a ministry there is for a person who is an encourager. You know the people I'm talking about? They're the people, I mean, they always are like encouraging you. Hey, that's great, you could do that. You know, They're always behind you, building you up, telling you you can get it done. Then you got the other people, oh, it'll, you'll never be able to do that. Uh, you just stay away from those people. They're not very encouraging at all. Well, Tychicus would have come to these people and conveyed Paul's perspective that we read in Philippians. You know, I don't think he showed up and said, oh, you guys, it's miserable. You know, Paul's just, he's chained up. He's just having, oh, he's about to get, you just, you don't even know. That's not very encouraging, Okay. I think he probably showed up and said, hey, look, yeah, yeah, Paul is living in a situation that's not exactly plush. He's in prison. That's right. But you wouldn't believe the ministry that God has given this man. Every time there's a chain of change of the guard, he's chained up to a new Roman soldier. How would you like to be chained to Paul? What do you think the topic of conversation would be? All right. 
He says, Paul just keeps getting more and more opportunities to tell the brothers about Christ. He goes, now there are believers throughout the Praetorian Guard. And many of Caesar's household have come to faith. He'd say, listen, you guys, don't worry about Paul. He's having the time of his life. He is being used in a mighty way of God. What can excite Paul's heart more than seeing the Roman soldiers and seeing the Praetorian Guard and Caesar's household come to faith? And he tells us in Philippians, that's what's happening. He says, those of Caesar's household greet you. How cool is that? Paul's not miserable in prison. He's not even focused on the surroundings or circumstances. It's just about ministry. And listen, ministry can take place in any circumstance. As a matter of fact, I think it takes place better in adverse circumstances. Because, you know, when you're living in your million-dollar mansion and you're driving your Mercedes, everything's going well, and you say, praise the Lord. People say, yeah, it's easy for you. But when you're having a really tough time, you know, and you're just doing all you can do to hang on to life, and you're praising God, then people say, what's with them? They take notice of that kind of stuff. That's what matters. Don't worry about Paul, Ephesians. That's Tychicus's message. Let me give you a little preterist sidebar here. All right. I think if we're not careful, we can begin to think the Bible is written to us. In this century, and therefore it's kind of detached from history. And I would dare say that's how most Christians read the Scripture. Like it's a newspaper. Hey, look what came the newspaper threw on my, the paper boy threw on my porch this morning. The New Testament. You know, like it just came. But I think the close of this epistle helps bring us back to reality that the Word of God was given to real people who lived in the first century. Paul writes, I have sent him to you. Who was sent to whom? Well, Tychicus was sent to the Ephesians. And many believers hold the view that the Bible was written to us. Well, if that's true, should we be looking for Tychicus? Is he on his way? You know, that that's an extreme example. And most Christians, I would think, say, no, that, that's to them, right? The letter was written 2,000 years ago. Tychicus is dead. The original audience is dead. Now, I'm sure you're not going to get a lot of argument about this from most Christians. They understand the principle of audience relevance here. But when it comes to referencing about Christ's return... The ignorance seems to get great, you know, confused here. Well, yeah, Tychicus was coming then to those people, but Christ, he's coming later to some other people. Where's the difference? How do you do that? What kind of hermeneutic is that that you pick and choose? You know, Christ's audience was a first century audience too. The things he said, he said to them also. There needs to be a consistency and application of the principles of audience relevance. Paul in, in Philippians says, I'm going to send Timothy to you shortly. Same word used of Christ's return. No believer that I know of is waiting for Timothy to show up. Why? They're all waiting for Christ to show up. Same exact words. Same audience. But we got this preconceived notion about Christ coming later. We got a preconceived notion about when He comes, what's going to happen. So therefore, can't, he, can't have, he could not have come yet. Is no. Because everything's going to be wonderful when he comes we're going to walk on streets of gold and that, you know we're all just going to be reigning over everybody who's not a christian it's just you know crazy ideas all right ephesians 6 23 he says peace be the brethren and love with faith from god the father and the lord yeshua the christ now usually paul's closing words are in the second person you but here he uses the third person and usually he closes with just a single part but in the ending here he gives us two different parts he is making a chiasmic inclusio. You understand what that is, right? He's ending the letter with the same emphasis which he began. All right, just bookmarks here. All right, look what he said in the beginning: "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ." So he starts with peace. He ends with peace. Now, peace is an abstract word in English, right? You say you have peace. What's that? Well, I just feel kind of, you know, good. Or, yeah, it's hard to explain, right? So I think to understand what peace really is, you've got to look at it in a concrete manner. And to do that, we look at the Hebrew, because the Hebrew is not abstract. The Hebrew is concrete. In the Hebrew, the word is shalom. 
It's used most often of restitution, which means to make someone whole. It literally means to make one whole, to make one complete. Often you'll hear people in the movement, the Hebrew Roots movement saying, Shalom Aleichem. It means, may you be whole and complete. It's a nice wish for people. May you have everything you need to be whole and complete. Well, in the ancient Hebrew, the word Shalom was made up of four letters. Alright, Hebrew reads from right to left. Alright? It starts with the shin, which looks like an E here on its side, and it's representative of teeth. It meant to consume or destroy. This is more middle Hebrew. If you go to the early Hebrew, it does actually look more like teeth, but that's what it means, to consume or destroy. The next letter is the lamed, and it looks like a shepherd's staff. It stood for control or authority. Then you have the vav, which is the nail. It has the idea of connecting or attaching. And then finally, the mem, which pictures water. And water to a Hebrew means chaos or mighty. So the word peace means to destroy that authority attached to chaos. Now that's a concrete understanding of peace. When you destroy what is bringing chaos, what do you have? Peace. There's no more chaos. Now you're at peace. The chaos has been destroyed. What is it that brings chaos into the lives of believers? It's sin. And Yeshua destroyed sin, thus making peace with Yahweh. It says, for He Himself is our peace, speaking of Yeshua, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He Himself. The position of the pronoun here in the Greek indicates that the best translation is He alone is our peace. Or He only is our peace. It's emphatic. Christ alone. Not only does Yeshua make peace between Jews and Gentiles, but He Himself is that peace. He living in believing Jews and Gentiles is what makes both one. And our union with Him, that we have peace with Yahweh. A. Skivington Wood writes, This is more than a farewell greeting. Talking about this end conclusion of Paul here. He says that it's a prayer for reconciliation. Paul longs to see the whole brotherhood of believers in Ephesus and its environs, Jews and Gentiles alike, at peace with each other in the one body of Christ. That's so true. He wants there to be peace in that church. The Jew and Gentiles who hated each other, he wants there to be a peace there. And one of the main thrusts in Ephesians is that through the cross of Yeshua the Christ, we have peace with God. And we have peace with those who we formerly were alienated. We have peace with God because of the blood of Yeshua that paid our sin debt. In chapter 1, in verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, He is our peace. In chapter 15, he says, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so making peace. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to them that were near. Chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What's the message of Ephesians? It's that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Where are our blessings? They're in Christ. Where is peace? It is in Christ. It's because we are in Him. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua, the Christ. So where do we get peace? It is only in Christ. That's the message of the epistle. In Him, we have peace. He goes on to say, and love with faith. Since Paul's praying for this for the brethren, he's concerned here with the increase of faith and love. Because he's talking to Christians. He wants their faith, their love to increase. As Christians, we need greater faith in Yeshua that will move us toward a self-sacrificing love for one another. If you turn to chapter 1 and verse 15, you find love there. He says, Wherefore also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Yeshua and your love for all the saints. So, he, they already love one another. He says, just encourage them, do it more. Chapter 4, verse 2, With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing, putting up with one another in love. Verse 15, he says, speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, each individual part causes the growth of the 
body for the building of itself in love. In chapter 5, verse 25, he starts speaking about the home. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own body. Verse 33, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that you reverence her husband. The word love is used some 14 times in the book of Ephesians. God's love for us is an example of our love for one another. And he says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, speaking to believers, be imitators of God. Mimics. Mimites is the word here. Be imitators of God. Mimic God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself for us an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The end of verse 23, Paul says, From God the Father and the Lord Yeshua, the Christ. This prepositional phrase indicates that the attributes of peace and love with faith have their origin in God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Augustine said that we know faith is a gift. He said for many reasons, but this is one of the reasons. He points to this verse. He says, Paul said, peace to the brethren and love and faith from God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. In other words, peace, love, and faith are from God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Faith is a gift of God. If we believe, it is because we have been given that faith in a wonderful grace. That is something to praise Yahweh about. That is something to be eternally grateful for. That I have faith, for it has come as a gift from God. Now the preposition from here introduces the entire expression, God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And it suggests that the two are on the same level. The Christ of the Bible is Yahweh who took upon human nature and sacrificed Himself for those that God had chosen in eternity. In verse 24, He brings in grace. Grace be with all those who love the Lord Yeshua the Christ with incorruptible love. Again, Paul's making a Chasmic inclusio here, ending the letter with the same emphasis he began. He begins the letter with grace. He ends it with grace. Twelve times in the letter he mentions grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. The word grace is charis. It means it's a gift. And the word freely here it's the idea of he's doubling up the emphasis here. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. The Hebrew word grace is hen and has the idea of providing continual protection. And Yahweh does this in the Beloved. Again, we see that all that we have, we have in Christ. Paul's emphasis is that salvation is by grace alone. And this, this is a word that the church here needs so desperately because so many churches they are trying to earn their favor with God. People are going through the motions, doing things, giving, serving, to earn God's favor. Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not out of yourself. It is a gift of God. In chapter 3, verse 2 and verse 8, And in chapter 4, verse 7, we saw that the only way we can serve Christ is because of His grace. Believer, all of the Christian life is a matter of grace. We're brought into Yahweh's eternal kingdom by grace. We're positionally and practically sanctified by grace. We're motivated to obedience by grace. We receive strength to live the Christian life by grace and we receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. The entire Christian life is a life of grace. And you turn that upside down when you're trying to earn God's favor by things that you do. Or feel like you lost God's favor because you didn't do this or didn't do that. You know, like He's grading on a you know merit system there. And okay, you're good, you can come in today. Oh, you're bad, you get out today. You know? To live by grace is to live solely by the merit of Christ. And people, that is an awesome way to live. You want to count on His merit? Or you want to depend on your own? 
To live by grace is to base my entire relationship with God, including my acceptance and my standing with Him on my union with Christ. To live by grace is to recognize that in myself, I bring nothing of worth to the relationship. Because even my righteous acts are like filthy rags in His sight. To live by grace means that we understand that God's love is not conditioned by obedience or disobedience, but by the perfect obedience of Yeshua. Look at this verse. One of my favorite verses in Scripture. For as through the one man's disobedience, that's referring to Adam, the many were made sinners. We understand that. Even so, I love the other side of the equation, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. How are believers made righteous? Through the obedience of the one, that one being Christ. Through Christ's obedience, we are made righteous. It's by His obedience. Notice also how Paul describes believers. He says, who love our Lord Yeshua the Christ with an incorruptible love. That's, that word is literally an immortality. It's an immortal love, an endless love. You know, people, Ephesians is a marvelous book. It is rich in doctrine. It is loaded with practical instruction. But I think that one of the greatest truths taught by Paul in this book is our union with Christ. And I think if we get that, it changes everything. Ephesians 2, 5-6 through 6, And when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with Him seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ. Notice that we are made alive with Christ. It's because of our union with Him that we have life. We are raised by with Him. We are seated with Him in heavenly places in Christ. None of these are possible on our own. It is only through our union with Christ that any of this is attainable. And the greatest fact of all is that we are joined to Yeshua the Christ. So from here on, our identity is no longer in Adam. Our identity is in Christ. You need to see yourself as in Christ if you've trusted Christ. Our destiny is identified with Christ's destiny. His work. He was made alive, so we're made alive. With Him. He was raised, so we're raised up together with Him. He was made to sit at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. We have been made to sit together with Him. Why have we been identified with Him? For the simple reason, He is the covenantal head of the redeemed family. What He does, He does for us. Everything that He did as a covenant head, He did for us. He bore the penalty of our sin. Our penalty was born. See, people think, well, what if I lose my salvation? If you think you can lose it, you don't understand it. Okay, You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. The only way you will lose your salvation, listen, the only way is if Christ gets kicked out of the Trinity. You're in Him. If He gets kicked out of the Trinity, you're in trouble. I don't think that's going to happen, people. That's the only way you could lose it. Because you are in Christ. Everything He is and has, we have and are because of Him. That's why heaven can't punish us one iota. Because we've died in Christ. He's borne the penalty. There's no further penalty. We're righteous. Believers, if we only start to see ourselves as righteous before God. Too often we walk down, we got our head down, we just feel discouraged because oh, I'm such a rotten person. You might be, but guess what? In Christ, you're accepted. In the Beloved. That's a motivating factor. I can serve Christ because I'm righteous. Because I'm in Him. He already approves of me. I'm not trying to earn His favor. I'm just out of a thankful heart saying, God, what can I do? Because of what You've done for me. What a magnificent thing to realize that my acceptance with the Father is acceptance Yeshua has with the Father. Man, that is incredible. Do you think He loves His Son? Then do you think He loves you? Yeah, if you're in the Son. That's why Paul talks about being in Him so often. That's what it's all about. It was the great truth that caused the hymn writer back in the 1600s to sing, So nigh, so very nigh to God, I cannot nearer be. People, do you understand that truth? You can't get any nearer to God 
People think, I want to get near to God, I got to work, I got to... You can't get near to God. Why? For in the person of His Son, I'm as near as He. How much nearer do you get than in Christ? You know, people, what you believe will determine how you live. So doctrine is extremely important. And the doctrine of the union with Christ is so important because when believers get a hold of that, it's a freeing thing to understand Father loves me. If ever He loved me, He loved me forever. To understand the doctrine of reunion with Christ, I think, is to really change our life. It's not about us. We fail. Oh man, we fail in it. You know, we sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I remember the first time I was singing that and I thought, yeah, that's me. I can sing that song with gusto. Yeah, I'm prone to wander. I mean, I am. I know that's true. And I need to count on Him. You know, we fail so often. And man, the confidence, the assurance it gives us that a relationship is not based on that. He loves us eternally. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your great love for us. For what You have given us in Christ. Lord, I pray that Your people would understand who they are in You. That our union with You brings us everything You are and everything You have. And Lord, I pray that that understanding would motivate us to a righteous, holy life out of pure gratitude for what You have given us. Lord, thank You. Open our eyes to the truth of Your Scripture, Lord. May we be people who walk in truth and honor our Father. Amen.